like one day I just found myself knocking on the door of the fridge to open the fridge it just knocked on the door and then just waited for an answer and then it was like I need help I just need help this is caregiver storyteller produced by caring kind the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving hi everyone and welcome to caregiver storyteller a storytelling podcast about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving I'm Chris Doucette and I'll be interviewing caregivers to get their stories about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving Occasionally, I'll also interview the authors, advocates, researchers, healthcare professionals, and people with Alzheimer's and dementia to hear their stories too. So, are you ready? Here we go. Hi everybody, I'm Dr. Lisa Mosconi. I am an associate professor in neuroscience and neurology at Weill Cornell Medical Center, where I serve as the associate director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic in the Department of Neurology. So um, I was born and raised in Florence, in Italy, but I live in New York City. And you love it. So, um, New York or yeah. Florence? Uh, I love Florence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like New York. I'm, it's very different mm-hmm. from Italy. I think the city has so much to offer and it's so convenient and everything is so easy to obtain and there's so many more opportunities in New York and in the States as compared to Italy, but I, I do think that Italians embrace quality of life a little bit more than people do here. Mm. Like my friends are, don't have the kind of stresses that we have. I believe that. Right? And food yeah. is better mm-hmm. and even healthcare is actually better on some levels. Yeah. And what brought That's you nice. to New York? Why come here? Uh, why here? So I was doing my PhD in Florence, I have a dual PhD in neuroscience and nuclear medicine. And wow. Right. Say, what is nuclear medicine? <laughs> so nuclear medicine is a branch of radiology, very specifically. So radiology does a lot of things, but mostly is focused on structure and lesions in some ways. Nuclear medicine does that, but on top of that, we use um, tracers to mm-hmm. go inside your body and allow you to see certain things. Like I'm, I'm sure everybody is familiar with uh, images or pictures of the brain where some parts are red, blue, yellow. Right. That's nuclear medicine. Ah, I see. Yeah, we measure like function, activity, mm-hmm. or um, biochemistry, mm-hmm. really. And I specialize in brains, obviously, but you can do heart, you can do anything in the right. brain that has an activity. Right. Why did you choose this direction for your yeah. life in either for either PhD? Yeah, yeah, it's a what good question. What was it that brought you to that? Well, field? I I wanted to do this since I was little, I think. So my parents, both of them, are nuclear physicists. Okay. I know it's a very weird childhood. <laughs> and my mom, in particular, she was teaching nuclear physics to her students who then transitioned to medicine. Mm-hmm. And they work in nuclear medicine because you need a lot of physicists just to, you know, for all the modeling, the kinetics, right. even just running the machine, interpolations. Right. It's very complex. And so they would literally babysit me. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up thinking that that was the coolest thing yeah. ever. And then as soon as I finished, actually, after three years at the university, we have five years university degrees you don't break it up into bachelor and master's it's just Mm -hmm. five years all at once Mm -hmm. um and so after three years i started volunteering there so you really i really was fascinated with the brain and so they took me in Mm -hmm. and they started training me to 
understand a little better how the brain works and how to use all these sophisticated techniques to really measure brain activity and the correlation between what the brain does and what happens behaviorally, right? Wow. The things you say, how well you walk, Interesting. your memory works. When you think back to your earlier days when you were new to the field, mm -hmm. when you were doing your PhD, and obviously you yeah. were, you know, neck deep in all of this research and yeah. learning, was there one thing that kind of stood out to you when you learned something about the brain that fascinated you what think back to a time when you when you learned something about the brain and you and you were gobsmacked you're like i can't believe uh, the brain works like that yes i Anything? think well back then i think i had two revelations uh -huh. in my professional career the first one was the incredible degree of synchronicity in the organization that's inside the brain, like how every single thing, every single thing that happens in the brain is just so perfectly regulated. Mm -hmm. It's really insane. Like everything has a has a reason. You know, if you do A, then you have B, C, and D, and everything is just so synchronized and just so perfect that you you really you get lost in right. the biochemistry of, of the brain, and it's just a source of wonder. Just even how do we see shapes? Right. You know, we take it for granted, but in reality, the mechanisms are incredible. Like you have neurons that literally, you know, these, this pack of neurons only fire if you have a vertical line in front of you. And these other neurons fire if the line is horizontal. And if they mm -hmm. fire together, then you see an L shape. And it's just, okay, well, it makes sense, <laughs> yeah. but it's just so incredible that right. that's the way it works. And then years later, when I was already in New York, the other, the other revelation I had is that I, I had everything wrong. Basically, I, I started working in, in this field. I, I always worked in Alzheimer's prevention all the time from, from the very beginning. So it was called early detection mm -hmm. when I started. Mm -hmm. And now people are more comfortable talking about prevention. And when I started, because of my background, I have a really strong biology background. And that speaks to genetics. Mm -hmm. So my, my first interest was really what kind of things in your DNA make you get Alzheimer's or not. Before you continue, of all the things that can happen to the brain, why did you uh, steer towards Alzheimer's? It was not my choice uh -huh. at first. <laughs> at first it was not. I, so I was training. So before starting my PhD, I mm -hmm. did a one-year mandatory training in neurology and psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And I just got folded into a project about early detection of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. They got a big grant from the European Union, and they needed somebody to really supervise uh, all the stats, you know, all the analyses. And yeah. I was thrilled. Good. To so do circumstance them. and opportunity. Yeah. But exactly at the same time that I was actually learning more about Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. my grandmother started showing symptoms mm. of dementia. And the first it was very subtle. You know, we were just like, oh, she's just cranky. Mm -hmm. But I think within a year, it got serious, very serious. And that was very scary for all of us. Just, just so you guys know, in Italy, we don't have the structures that you have here. There are no senior homes. Really? No. There are no senior homes. So it's all family caregiving? All family caregiving. Interesting. There are, I think there are some now, maybe Milan, 
mm-hmm. you know, like in very more industrialized, industrialized cities where right. people just can't afford to have a big home. Or I right. mean, not that we had a huge home, but um, usually your grandparents or your parents have their own place. Right. Right. And right. They, it, you usually live nearby. Yeah. Because in Italy, very few people move. Right. You know, you're born in one city and you just grow up in that city. Yeah. And so, yeah, you are by default the caregiver. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then my grandma's sister got Alzheimer's mm-hmm. or some form of dementia. And then her younger sister got it too. And like within three years of each other. Wow. Three to five years, I would say. It was just like, oh my God. That sounds overwhelming for it the family. It was incredible. It was absurd. And All who was, three who of was them. The main, who was the main caregiver for your grandmother and her sisters? So for my grandma, it was my mom mm-hmm. and my dad, of course, but it was really mo- mostly my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And f- there's, her sisters actually lived in a different city, mm-hmm. so their own, their own daughters. Okay. Yes. And how was always the girls, you know? Always. Always. Well, <laughs> that's true in America too, right? Yeah, like it's it, much it, more it, so. It's much more the the the, the women yes. who end up taking on the caregiving yes. role. Yes. And what was the impact on your on your mom for as as she? She suffered. She suffered. She suffered enormously. My, you know, every every patient has a different experience as they go mm-hmm. through Alzheimer's or dementia and the symptoms, we tend to cluster them into oh, memory loss, attention, language, but the reality is so much more complex. Mm-hmm. And for my grandma, she got really aggressive, oh. incredibly aggressive, and she was so just confused and she, she basically locked herself in the house. And towards like a few years later, she just would not want to see anyone but my mom. Mm-hmm. And you know what happens to many Alzheimer's patients that they're up at night. They sleep all day and then they're wide awake at night screaming. And right. so my mom got no sleep. And she had to work during the day, obviously, right? So right. at some point they got help. Like a, a lady who uh, moved in with my grandma. Mm-hmm. And so she was taking, but she was taking the day. You know, she was there d- during the day. She mm-hmm. would clean my grandma, give her food, and that was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, it's very expensive mm-hmm. to be able to do that. But then at night, she went to sleep. And then my mom would start the night shift, right. basically. So she was, a, she was a complete wreck. And I was already living here, so I couldn't really even help, help that much. Although, mm-hmm. again, my grandma just wanted my mom to know. Mm-hmm. And what was your grandmother like before symptoms started showing oh it's really it's a sad story she was she was tough she was really tough she grew up uh during world 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 one mm-hmm. right uh, in italy and then she had my mom and my uncle during world world two and my grandfather was a general in the italian army mm-hmm. so as soon as italy decided to break the alliance with the nazis my grandfather immediately got arrested and shipped to a concentration camp in Austria. So my grandma was alone in Italy where there was no food whatsoever. Sometimes they had no food for like weeks. Right. I won't tell you what they had to eat. Right. And she was raising these two very young kids. And then when the war was over, my grandfather fortunately made it back from wow. concentration camp, but 
in, in, in a state, right. of course. And so then she had to go to work. And she was actually one of the very first women in Italy to get a university degree in business. There weren't that many After women. After all of that, before, she got a degree. Before, oh, before. Okay, before. She had a degree okay. from before. Oh, my goodness. But <laughs> in Italy, women just didn't go to university right. it, you know, right. back then. But she went. You know, she was a very strong very woman. Driven. And then, yes, yeah. incredibly, very smart, very just incredible strength of will. And then she went to teach when my grandpa mm-hmm. just couldn't work at that point. Mm-hmm. And so really nothing broke her spirit until dementia right and then she just completely broke down and it was just so shocking for us because she was such a strong presence in right. in her family right you know even our extended family right she was like the boss yeah. really she was literally the boss <laughs> and she was tough she was very tough yeah that's so hard yes, especially if you're if if someone's identity is based on strength yes then it, then the opposite occurs and it becomes an identity crisis for the whole family I'm oh sure. yeah 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 we were yeah. just like what is going on no we just we had no idea what to do even just how to handle her right you know because she's not like she just got more even more uh, in control and so right. we're trying to maintain control so it was very hard just to say to her we're going to get help mm. for you. That was right. like, it took years before she agreed to have anybody in the house. Wow. And you're a super educated, competent family, right? Very. Like you have a, a resources that some people yes. don't have. 100%, and it's yes. still, uh, it still sounds like a very painful ordeal. Oh and, my, yes, yeah. of course. I, I yeah. think education has nothing to do with, Yeah. right? You're just completely unprepared. It doesn't, I mean, I studied. Right. I prepared in some ways to deal with Alzheimer's, and right. I was just baffled. It was like, why is this happening? And how did that? Uh, how did that influence your ongoing education? Oh, it did. It did a lot. So I started looking into prevention even more, mm-hmm. and I started really questioning my education because they we didn't have a family history of Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Nobody else had it. In my family, but wow. the, no, and nothing, all of a sudden, boom, three. nothing, three, yeah, all three of them, all women, mm-hmm. also, right, because they also had a brother who never had issues. It was four of them, and only the girls, you know, only the women got Alzheimer's. And so, what I was saying before is that I, I started working in this field, thinking that genetics and your DNA was really key. And after many years of just trying to find genetic markers that really applied to, to the Alzheimer's population, I was like, this is just not working. Mm-hmm. No, there's something else that is just as important and I'm not looking into. And that's when I started looking into lifestyle and especially in, into nutrition mm-hmm. and diet mm-hmm. because there, there was work showing how a poor diet uh, predi- well, I didn't say predisposed, but how if you have a poor diet somehow that associates with an increased risk of dementia as you get older, mm-hmm. and there were uh, there were studies that wonderful studies where they had a lot of people, like thousands of people now, and they looked at their diets, and then they would follow these people for years to decades, and then they were able to correlate 
the diet pattern the first time the patients walked in the door with the future risk of Alzheimer's. And mm-hmm. that was interesting to me because they were all about the Mediterranean diet and how uh, a Mediterranean diet, you know, a Mediterranean style diet can be protective against dementia. And what I because I do brain imaging all the time, right. I thought, well, it would be very interesting to see what happens in the brain. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to have to wait 10 years to be able to say, oh, yeah, you right. know, right. the way you ate 10 years before is now giving you this problems. I want to, right. to be able to, to have the patient walk in the door, we go to the machine, we take scans of the brain, we talk about diet, exercise, sleep, stress, uh, intellectual stimulation, and I want to see what happens in your brain that could be related to that. Mm-hmm. So I started doing that. I, I started my own lab. I was a professor by then, and mm-hmm. I started my own lab. And I used to work in New York University School of Medicine at NYU, mm-hmm. and it was the, the Nutrition and Brain Fitness Lab. Uh-huh. And it was interesting to me. You say that with a smile. Why? I didn't choose the name. <laughs> <laughs> it was the chairman of my department who suggested nutrition and brain fitness. Okay. It sounds a little new agey to me, yeah. but it's actually what we were doing. And the other thing is that I, I realized I knew nothing about nutrition or diet. Like mm-hmm. We don't study that in school, even in Italy. Right. We don't study it in school. I, there was not even an, an elective. Nothing. And we're Italian. I mean, we, we, we understand the food is medicine. Yeah. Much, yeah. you know, we, we care about the quality of our foods. We're, ve- we're, we're obsessive about our food. Yeah, you are. Very much. <laughs> yes. Very, very much. And so I went back to school. Okay. You know, there was not enough education for uh, me. I, see. I went back to school and uh-huh. now I'm also a nutritionist. I'm a certified, uh, board certified nutritionist and it's called holistic. Is that in, in addition to the two PhDs? Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> I know, and the five years university degree. <laughs> I basically have 24 years of education. You have school. a lot more than I do. What did you learn from the nutrition uh, uh, education that you got? How did it, did it change your perspective on the previous education that you had with regard to brain health? So I think if you start the way I started, that you really study biochemistry and biology. Mm-hmm. Then when you study nutrition, it sounds a little bit like, you know, I could use some more details. Right. 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 But what, what was really important to me was number one, to understand how people think about nutrition mm-hmm. and all the different dietary theories that are available. And why is it that people go on fat diets all the time? Mm. You know, it isn't just the psychology of food. I was not, I had no insight. And what was really important to me was to rethink neurochemistry, brain chemistry, as actual nutrition. That was my second revelation that I was ah, going to say. Yeah. Um, you know, I, ha- I, I studied a lot of neurochemistry, mm-hmm. and it's all about potassium, sodium, magnesium, protein, fat, omega-3 fatty acids, and choline that is a B vitamin. But I never thought that's actually food. You know, for me, it was just chemistry. Right, right. But where where are they coming from? Where are these molecules coming from? They're Mm -hmm. not just magically appearing inside Mm -hmm. your brain. They're actually coming from the foods you eat. Mm -hmm. So it, it makes a lot of sense that your diet will will influence your brain health, especially, everybody says, but how about exercise? How about intellectual stimulation? 
They would say yes, with the difference that we eat five, three, five times a day, every single day, right. from the moment we're born. Right. We exercise twice a week, <laughs> <laughs> right? Some At people most, more, yeah. but some people less. And yeah. a lot of pe- people go through a period of time where they're not exercising, or you're not stimulating your brain intellectually. A lot of people go through periods of time where they, can, they just can't sleep, but right. mostly you sleep. Right. But so, you know, food is really something that goes inside your body every single day from the moment you're born, right? many times a day. And so it's got more of a chance to make an impact. And so that's why I decided to write this book, Brain Food, to really share the research and take the research out of the lab Mm -hmm. into people's lives. Because like all my patients tell me that people are confused about brain nutrition. It's a scientist approach mm-hmm. to brain nutrition, so it's really based on research. And uh, anybody can say this is backed by science, and then you can show that one little paper published in some obscure journal that right. shows an effect, but in reality, that's not the way science works. Right. You, know, you, you need to have clinical trials. You need to have a lot of papers showing exactly the same thing in order to right. call that reality. Right. Right. So there's a different approach, I think, that scientists take when they really review what's available out there. And also, it's my research. Mm -hmm. You know, we have done so much, so much research looking at the effects of diet and nutrition in the brain, Mm -hmm. and we can show the effects using brain scans. And in a way, the timing was right in some ways because society has gone from vegan veganism and a lot of plants and grains and fruit and mm-hmm. very little animal mm-hmm. feeds to ketogenic diets where pretty much nobody touches grains because they're terrified of gluten uh-huh. and at the same time they're loading up on very high fat foods yeah and that's incredibly dangerous for the brain like there's there's plenty of literature showing that too much fat is just not good for your brain and sure the quality and the source of the fat makes a difference, mm-hmm. but in general, it's just not the right way to support your brain. And the reason that I shared this in the book is that um, the nutritional needs of the brain and the body are not the same. Interesting. So right. talk more about that because that yeah. sounds uh, that strange was interesting to me, quite to frankly. Me. <laughs> right. Well, it sounds strange for sure. Your brain is part sure. of your body, so why wouldn't it be the same? That's, that's an excellent question. And because your brain is more important. Well, when it's more important, it's more precious in some ways. It's more delicate. Delicate is a good way. So the brain is in charge of all the rest of you. And so it really needs to be protected from mm-hmm. anything that can come from the outside that could potentially be harmful. Hormone, toxins, mm. pathogens, bacteria, anything that comes from the outside needs to be basically screened. The same way that I went through reception downstairs and yes. I had to show an ID. Yes. To be, to be allowed up here, that's the same thing that happens in the brain. Mm-hmm. So the brain has a barrier that separates the brain from the rest of the body. It's called the blood-brain barrier. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about it is that it comes with a lot of little gates, mm-hmm. and the brain opens the gates when the brain itself is hungry. So you have gates for sugar. You have gates for this particular kind of fat. You have mm-hmm. gates for this vitamin, or you mm-hmm. have gates for this mineral. I give my brain way too much sugar. 
you do? Well, well, let me tell you. Let me tell you. It's not a sponge. That's the other thing. So it's the brain that regulates entry of food uh-huh. inside the brain. You can eat all the sugar you want, but your brain is not going to get any of it unless it needs it. Which is not to say you should <laughs> eat too eat much sugar. Heard That's it here, someone. folks. You can have as much sugar as you want. No, 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 no. <laughs> No, no, no. But, you know, too much sugar, especially refined sugar, creates a lot of other problems in the body, like inflammation, it creates insulin resistance, obesity, Mm -hmm. too much bad fat and hormonal imbalances. For women especially, as soon Mm -hmm. as you're like premenopausal, which means anywhere between 35 and 51, Mm -hmm. sugar has got to be drastically reduced because it really... It really impacts your hormones in a bad way. Yeah. The same for caffeine, for alcohol, you know, all the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> should be, there should be treats yeah. once in a while, but not the norm. Right. And in the States, we have a tendency to overdo it with refined and processed foods yes. that are really not healthy for you. But going back to the brain, the brain decides what to eat. And the brain is very selective. Mm-hmm. So there are foods and nutrients that can be helpful to the rest of your body especially fat, Mm -hmm. because the rest of your body can burn it for energy, but the brain cannot. So there is fat inside the brain, but the brain cannot burn it Mm -hmm. to make energy. The only reason to have fat inside your brain is for structural purposes. It's needed like to shield your neurons, to give plasticity to membranes, Mm. to help uh, maintain your neurons' fluids, and it really helps also for immune system. Mm Uh, concerns like omega-3 fatty acids are anti-inflammatory, omega-6 fatty acids are pro-inflammatory, so you want to have a good balance. Basically what happens is that of all the fat that we can get from the diet, Mm -hmm. these fats that I just mentioned are the only ones that can get inside your brain. They're called polyunsaturated fatty acids, Mm -hmm. and they're like omega-3 and omega-6. There's also omega-9, omega-7 that we just don't get to talk about because the media somehow didn't make them popular. Okay. I know. Yeah, because I've heard of the, the first ones, but not the other ones. Right, I know. Yeah. There's, there's plenty of fats that just never get mentioned. Uh, phospholipids, sphingolipids, those are actually the main fats inside the brain that we just never talk about. Right. But cholesterol can, can't get inside your brain ever. Ever. Never. So the brain makes all his own cholesterol when we're born. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. Just the cholesterol can never come inside the brain from the outside, mm-hmm. and the cholesterol in the brain just stays right there. It stays there. It leaks just a little tiny little uh-huh. bit, but cholesterol is just made by the brain, in the brain, for the brain. There's no exchange. Okay. Uh, saturated fat, you know, like all these diets are saying we should eat a lot of saturated fat because it's good for the brain. No, it's not. It's really not. So uh, what's an example of a saturated fat? Like avocado fat? Yes, although avocado is rich in monounsaturated fatty acids that uh-huh. are good for the heart. Uh-huh. But I would say more like, you know, when you have ham yeah. and there's the, the white ribbon fat that you get in meat, for I instance, is, a, is an example of saturated fat. Uh, dairy. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, when you eat cream, that's a lot of saturated fat. And that's when good for and that, and the brain. Can, that's not good for the brain. It's not. Help, the brain just doesn't use it. That's the thing. So the brain makes saturated fat inside the brain when we're kids and mm-hmm. when we're actually as soon as we're born so when we're infants it mm-hmm. makes the most mm-hmm. and also takes some up 
from the diet, but only when you're a child. Mm -hmm. And by the time you reach adolescent, adolescence, that's it, pretty much the rate of uptake from blood is minimal. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you because we do that with brain scans, like we can measure how much fat is literally getting inside the brain and the uptake for saturated fat is close to zero. The only kind of saturated fat that can get inside the brain is kind of short. It's called like medium chain triglycerides. Mm -hmm. But even then uptake is very small as compared to the omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids, which means the brain just doesn't need as much. Okay. You know, it'll just take up a little bit yep. and everything else will stay and just deposit it on their waist <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> So, so how, do, how do we know what's, what our brain needs, right? So if, if the brain is hungry for something, mm. how do we know that? Like, and how we do don't. We, we don't. Well, one way to find out is if you feel like very low energy, if mm -hmm. you feel like brain fog, or if you're not focused, if you have a hard time concentrating, mm -hmm. that's a sign that your brain's either tired or that you need to stretch, or that you need a massage, mm -hmm. or number one, you need more water. Too many people are mildly dehydrated and they don't realize that. Mm -hmm. But the brain is the one organ in the body that suffers the most when we don't drink enough water. And that's another difference between the brain and the rest of the organs that the brain is 80% water mm -hmm. as compared to much less in the other organs. And every single chemical reaction that takes place in the brain needs water to occur. And that's everything from energy production mm -hmm. to making the neurotransmitters, like the chemicals that the brain needs uh, to communicate, mm -hmm. right? The mm -hmm. neurons, brain cells need to communicate information. Right. That's all based on water. And so even just a 2 to 4% water loss, which mm -hmm. is nothing, it's just basically a sunny day if you don't drink enough water, right. uh, can cause neurological symptoms like confusion, brain fog, dizziness, forgetfulness, even. Wow, so, so need really to drink the, more. the first thing about brain health is really Water. hydration yes. Yes. more than nutrition. I would say hydration yeah. would be my number one, yes. How interesting. Yes, and also there are, not my work, but other studies show that uh, if you're chronically dehydrated, your brain loses volume and you'll see brain shrinkage. So your brain wow. is shrinking when you're not drinking enough wow. and you don't want your brain to shrink. No, no. <laughs> mine is small enough already. I don't <laughs> need any more. So in your book, do you talk about uh, what foods you recommend people yes. eat on a regular basis? Sure. And, and what, you know, what kind of foods are they? So I would start, I always start with fish and mm -hmm. everybody is like, oh, I don't like fish. And I would say, I love fish. I love I, fish. Right? Yeah. It's fantastic. I, I know, good fish is, is an incredible brain food because um, the, the nutritional composition of fish is pretty much an excellent mirror to the chemical composition of your brain. So really? all the new yes, yes, there's everything good. We, yeah. have, we have fishy brain, yeah, <laughs> that's funny, yes. We have fishy brains, but it's true. So the omega-3 density, especially of DHA, mm -hmm. so omega-3s, omega-6 fatty acids, they come in different forms. Mm -hmm. And there's one form that the brain needs every single day. It's called DHA, mm -hmm. omega-3 DHA. And it's only in fish. It's only in fish. Yeah, yeah it's the only source of DHA. Mm -hmm. So for 
vegetarians or vegans who take um, the vegan form of omega-3 supplements, mm -hmm. that's a different form of omega-3. It's called ALA, mm -hmm. and it can be converted to DHA. But the problem is that 75% is lost in the conversion. So if that's the kind of supplements that people are taking, it's important to know you need to take three times as much. Interesting. Because you're losing 75% of that. So that was fish. Yeah. Uh, fish is my number one. Uh, number two is greens. And I think every, it sounds obvious in some yeah. ways, but so many people don't eat enough fresh greens. And when they do, it's always the same kind. Yeah. Right? But the yeah. brain really needs diversity. Yeah. So it's very important to to have a little bit of everything that is green mm -hmm. because different veggies contain different combinations of nutrients. So fish and, and a Veggie. variety of greens, yes. whether it's kale or broccoli or spinach. Bean, beans and spinach. Spinach is a good one. All yeah. the mixed greens. I, I would go seasonal mm -hmm. to really have the most um, phytonutrients, mm -hmm. which are nutrients from plants that are the antioxidant part of the plant or the anti-aging mm -hmm. part of the plant. So they have to be fresh and they have to be colorful. Yeah. No iceberg lettuce. No. No. I don't, don't like those do anyway. That. That's fine. Yeah, but a lot of people, <laughs> it's pretty much the only kind of salad that they eat is right. iceberg, iceberg lettuce, which doesn't have any good nutrients no. in there. What about frozen? What about frozen greens? Because I do, the, I do that a lot. It's better than the nothing yeah. for sure. And if you buy frozen organic, it's mm -hmm. actually a good way to save some money on the mm -hmm. organic, right? And have good veggies. But you know, when you freeze them, you do lose a bunch of nutrients, and then the only way to cook, you have to cook them. Right. And then you further uh, downgrade the nutrients. So I would say do that for sure, yeah. <laughs> but also have a salad. Right. Right. Maybe for lunch. You know, yeah. Alternate. <laughs> so uh, fish and mixed greens. And berries. And berries. Berries that are great good. for the brain. Yes. And everybody Why is that? thinks what do they have? they're packed with antioxidants. Mm. You know how they're so colorful? Mm -hmm. So the color comes from pigments mm -hmm. that are also phytonutrients, nutrients from plants. And everyone has a special and particular antioxidant action. So what happens in the brain, which is the way, which is the reason that the brain ages more than the other organs and needs more protection, is that um, it's very prone to oxidative stress, which is when free radicals form. Mm -hmm. The same way when you smoke and you have free radicals in your lungs, mm -hmm. the same thing happens in your brain just as a natural process as we get older, mm -hmm. much more so than anywhere else in your, in your body. And so the brain really needs antioxidants to balance that out. So the brain produces an oxidation just because of the way the brain is. Right. You know, it's, it has a lot of fat and right. fat oxidizes easily. And so we need to, to give the brain the antioxidants that it needs uh, to kind of quench the inflammation and the oxidation. For someone like me who's hurt my brain my entire life, can you repair any damage that's been done to the it brain? It can improve. It can improve. For sure, yes. I mean, damage is, is a difficult word to deal with, right? Like, it comes in so many different forms mm -hmm. and in so many different levels. You know, there's a very mild damage, and then there's the damage that Alzheimer's can do to your brain. So depending on what the status of your brain is, uh, I see. you yeah. need to do more or less. You need, you need to, to take action right away, or you can just tweak your diet. But mm -hmm. for some people, it's really a complete revamp. It's like a, a whole 
lifestyle modification. And I think this is so important for caregivers because like we were saying before, there's evidence that caregivers might be at higher risk for Alzheimer's as compared to non-caregivers. And that's obviously not because of your genes. It's because of your lifestyle. Right, that because you were some sharing caregivers with the are, patient. Not, yeah. are not related to the person they're caring for. So, if But it, there could be the spouses. Right. Right. In right. that case, it's really not genetic. For, right. the, for the children, yes, it's yes. a different story yeah. for sure. There, it can be a combination of, of both. Mm-hmm. So it's really, but for everybody, I think it's really important to, to focus on your lifestyle and just be as healthy as you can possibly be because there are no side effects to that. And if right. you can, right? There I are mean, no there's downsides no, to no, taking care no. of yourself. And that's why at Caring Kind, one of the main messages we give people is self-care. Because if you're not taking care of yourself, you're eventually going to run yourself ragged and you won't be able to care for the person uh, that you're caring for. Yeah, then you need care. Right. And then you need care. Then and you then need it just care. becomes a falling dominoes. Yes. Right? And can I add something? for, yeah. Especially for women, this is so important because we know, and this is a huge part of my research, I, I specialize in women's health mm-hmm. and Alzheimer's risk. We know that of every three Alzheimer's patients, two are women everywhere in the world. And the majority of caregivers are women everywhere mm-hmm. in the world. So as women, we are at risk for Alzheimer's just by virtue of the fact that we are women, which is really upsetting in so many ways. But we have done so much research trying to understand why women have more risk of Alzheimer's than men and why women outnumber men two to one in the general population, like globally. Mm -hmm. And it looks like hormones have really a big role in that we have shown um, by doing brain imaging, then if you take men and women of age 40 to 60 and you compare them, women's brains just age faster than men who are exactly the same age. And that really depends not just on, on your chronological age, mm-hmm. but on your hormonal age. So as we start going through menopause and mm-hmm. perimenopause, mm-hmm. even before then, uh, your progesterone goes down, then eventually your estrogen goes down, and your brain pretty much shuts down accordingly. Right. And that's when women start to show accumulation of Alzheimer's plaques mm-hmm. in their brains, whereas men are totally fine. Which is, oh, of course, <laughs> right? Of course they're fine. <laughs> but I, I think hormonal imbalance, you know, eventually everybody gets through menopause because mm-hmm. you have to do that. And But the way different women experience that can be very different. There are Mm -hmm. women who have no problems Mm -hmm. and women who have a lot of neurological symptoms, like hot flashes, night Mm -hmm. sweats, insomnia, so many people, just so many women suffer from insomnia, stress, too much stress, anxiety, Mm -hmm. depression, memory loss, confusion, forgetfulness. This happens in midlife. Right. You know, regardless of whether or not you have a family history of Alzheimer's. It just right. happens because you're a woman, because your hormones are changing, and probably because your lifestyle is not helpful. Well, that was my question, is that you know the change in hormones is happening just because it's a biological fact of life. Yeah, but we make it so much worse. But then you add another layer to it where your hormones affected by your actual lifestyle. So yeah. if you smoke and drink and stay out late or you're stressed by maybe you're a caregiver, maybe you're not, but you're, you know, all of these things impact 
hormones. And what you're saying is that hormones actually affect the brain, the brain. and can predispose a person to um, illness. Yes, it can accelerate mm. aging in the brain, and aging is a risk factor for Alzheimer's, for sure. And I right. think what a lot of women don't, maybe they just don't realize that having hot flashes and insomnia is not your ovaries, it's actually your brain that's suffering. And if your brain is giving you signs of unease, we need to address them. And especially hormones have a really strong um, lifestyle has a really strong influence on, on hormones, mm -hmm. especially stress. So what I wanted to say is that caregivers usually are stressed out, you know, as, as yeah. they should. Yeah. <laughs> but the stress is not just stress. The stress is actually impacting your hormonal levels. And that in turn really impacts your brain as a woman. So it's not just the emotional experience of caregiving. It's also taking a physical toll. Oh, yes, for sure. For sure, yes. It just makes everything worse, yeah. but especially your hormones. And so stress is number one because um, the stress hormone is called cortisol. Mm -hmm. And the higher the cortisol is, is, the lower your progesterone is. They're like in balance. Mm -hmm. So if you have high cortisol, your progesterone goes down and your estrogens go down. But then you lower your cortisol and the other hormones are like, oh, finally. <laughs> and you can take a breather and just uh, go back up. So I think it's really important to to find stress reduction techniques. I think I think it's unreasonable to say, oh, just stress out less. Right. You know, what kind of advice is that? Nobody well, likes to be stressed out. That's stressful out. to have someone. <laughs> imagine you're yes. upset and someone yes. says, calm down. Calm down. You, you, you calm down. You're upset. <laughs> yes, for sure. But it's actually very important to find ways to lower stress. Right. Because especially for women, especially for women under a lot of stress, and in midlife, which is usually when you end up being a, car a caregiver. Right. But okay. how do you do that, honestly? In a real life scenario, if you are, you know, 45 to 50 year old woman taking care of a person with Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. if and especially if they're a family member, then how, how, and you have to work as your yes. mother worked. Yes. How do you, how do you work and take care of someone yeah. and then find the time to actually take care of yourself and eat right and go to the farmer's market and buy fresh green. I mean, that seems like it just don't go like... to the farmer's market, <laughs> <laughs> buy food online. <laughs> That's for sure. I think it's very personal. Yeah. And different strategies work for different people. Mm -hmm. Like, um, so when my daughter was born, mm -hmm. I'm not a caregiver at mm -hmm. this point, but I do have a toddler. And mm -hmm. after my daughter was born, I was working full time and my husband was in Boston. Mm -hmm. So I was broadly a single mom most of the week with a very demanding job. I was writing the book mm -hmm. in my second language, and I had an infant who just did not sleep at night. Right. I was beyond stressed <laughs> out. I was beyond, like, help. I was at the help level. Right. And so I, I found help. I found that, um, like, personally, I respond to homeopathy. Mm -hmm. I, I know for me it makes no sense that it would work, but it actually does. For some people, not for everybody, but right. for some people it works. And so I took uh, homeopathic remedies to just reduce cortisol levels. Mm -hmm. I, I tested myself for cortisol and it was high. Ah, the benefit of being a scientist. <laughs> yes, but I don't think you really need to test. I mean, if you're right. stressed, you're stressed. You know and it. if you're right. stressed, your cortisol is high. It okay. doesn't take yeah. you know, a doctor right. to tell you, you know that. Yeah. Although if you want to test it, it's actually better 
and your doctor can guide you through the process, which is so much better than self-medication. And so those remedies really help me sleep at night. And if, it, if you can get a good night's sleep, your day is so much easier right. in so many ways. So many women have a hard time falling back asleep, right? Once you wake up in the middle of the night, it's so hard for so many of us, because for me it's impossible, to just go back to sleep. Right. And that helped me. There are very nat natural remedies that help. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to go totally new, new age on this, but um, dark cherry extract. Okay. It's a juice that you mix with water. Uh -huh. And if you drink it, somehow it promotes relaxation and it helps you sleep at night. Melatonin, for mm -hmm. some people, helps. Um, if hormonal imbalances is the problem, then uh, rhodiola is a good supplement. Mm -hmm. There's another one. Chest berry extract is another good supplement. And omega-3s are really essential. I would say if there's one thing you can do to really help your brain during throughout a period of stress, mm -hmm. a B vitamin complex, a B complex vitamin uh -huh. supplement, uh -huh. and with all the different kinds, like B5 uh -huh. is really important, B6, B12, and folate. A lot of Bs, so a lot of Bs and folic acid. Which is also a B. Oh, it's a B2. It's a B9, okay. yes. Right. So, so like a, a B complex vitamin okay. and omega-3 supplements, DHA. Or the vegan one. So if you're stressed, that's like a one easy thing to do is to I take think the it's a good complex. step. Yeah. I think it's a very I'm I am i am not really too much in favor of supplements, but mm -hmm. I realized when I was taking care of my baby, basically mm -hmm. I was at the end of my wits. Like one day I just found myself knocking on the door of the fridge. To open the <laughs> fridge, it just knocked on the door and then just waited for an answer and then it was like, I need help. I just need help. And I, I find that a lot of people who are taking care of somebody else have similar problems, like sleep right. deprivation, stress, anxiety, sadness. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sad, obviously, but, you know, those are really good supplements. And just taking a pill for a short amount of time when you can't really give yourself the time that you need mm -hmm. to really relax or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Like if you don't have an hour to cook whole grains, you just don't have it. Right. You know, so that's a supplement. It's something that you do on top of eating healthily and trying to remove other stressors like caffeine. Hate to say that, but that's really bad in some ways. Oh, no. Uh, too much. <laughs> too yes. much. You know, it disrupts your sleep. For many people, it's dehydrating. Yeah. Very often, the quality of the coffee is not good. It increases acidity mm -hmm. in your body. Mm -hmm. And so your pH goes off balance, and that creates inflammation. It creates, you know, your back hurts. And yeah. I would say start with the supplements. Mm -hmm. Take some help. You know, just even valerian root is mm -hmm. a plant. What's but it called? Valerian. Valerian? Valerian root. Mm -hmm. You can take pills, and it really helps sleep at night. Whereas, you know, it's, a lot of people take antidepressants or sleeping pills that actually don't give you restful sleep right don't solve the problems you just become dependent on the pill to be able to sleep and they yeah. give so many side effects especially again in women of yeah. course we've got to wrap up soon but i want to ask a couple questions uh, the first one is how do people discern the reliable information out there in the universe with regard to food as medicine and what's kind of bunky you know, mm. what, how does how does a person navigate uh, what's real and what's not? It's a, it's a fantastic question. I think 
So first of all, who says that? There are so many people without credentials at all mm -hmm. who somehow become nutrition experts, you know, and they're best-selling authors without really understanding the biology mm -hmm. or even just, you know, the chemistry of a Kazan and without any experience because they have never seen a patient in their lives. And yet their books do so well. The other thing is um, social media. So much information is just um, shared through social media, and that's great in so many ways, but it also means that the information travels much faster than anybody's ability to actually check it, right? And that's why we get all these swings from, okay, now everybody's vegan, and now everybody's eating fat, and nobody's touching grains, and these are trends. Right. And science is not fashion. Mm -mm. And health is not fashion. I think as a scientist and as a nutritionist, um, my understanding of human physiology is that we strive as organisms, we need balance. The ultimate goal of any living organism is to re reach homeostasis, which is basically a state of balance inside the body where everything just works well and in harmony. And I think as, as human beings, our mission is to support whatever balance the, the body and the brain are optimized for mm -hmm. instead of trying to disrupt that. So if something is very extreme, most likely it's going to change in three months. You know, like mm -hmm. it's the kind of diet you will not find next year. Right. Not sustainable. Not sustainable. I would say go for reasonable evidence. There had, there had to be clinical trials demonstrating causation and also looking for side effects and lack of side effects. Mm -hmm. You know, there has to be standardization of a diet. There has to be very clear guidelines as mm -hmm. to what to eat, how much, how often, and a clear understanding of what happens to you if you stay on the diet too long. Mm -hmm. For example, like what are the short-term side effects or the long-term side effects, if that is unknown, you know, I would take it with, with caution. Right. You can really mess up your metabolism. Like my, my major concern with these extreme diets is that they, they have an effect on your body. And the first effect they have is that they change your metabolism. But your metabolism doesn't necessarily have to be changed unless there's a medical condition that you need to address. And in that case, talk to your doctor. Find a doctor that understands the importance of nutrition for, for health. And there are many mm -hmm. at this point. Mm -hmm. Even just bouncing back and forth. And what is really important to also understand is that um, medications play a big role in your response to foods. Mm -hmm. There are some foods you should not eat if you have a medical condition. There are some foods you should not eat if you're taking some medications. There are some foods that you have to eat mm -hmm. if you're taking some medication. Uh -huh. There are some diets you can't do if you have like hypothyroidism. Why would anybody with hypothyroidism go on a high-fat diet? You know, maybe for some people it works, but for, for many other people it could be really shocking. Right. The other thing is that you don't want to keep changing diets. You don't want to go from one extreme to the other because mm -hmm. that's the best way to, number one, um, induce allergies mm -hmm. and intolerances in your body that you didn't have before. 
but you you create them by eliminating entire food groups for mm. periods of time. That's how your immune system starts reacting to foods. Now that leads me to a question, though, because I, because there is no cure, official cure for Alzheimer's mm. and dementia, then people are desperate for one, and then that's why people are so easily convinced that yes. maybe if I change my diet or I can change my mother's diet mm -hmm. and that will cure the dementia because there yeah. are you know there or are podcasts out there yes. and there are there are you know blogs and websites that say you can cure Alzheimer's with nutraceuticals and this diet and and reverse Alzheimer's and they make these claims and people want to believe it and so they do and you've said that nutrition can help but there's a lot of junk science out there too of making course. claims that they shouldn't be making i completely agree i don't i i find it very bizarre and i think the books should be peer-reviewed mm -hmm. and i never thought about it until i started looking into the kind of books that my patients read mm -hmm. and you know there are claims being made even by people with credentials that are just not supported by the literature by the science or by the research and they get to publish it anyway. I find it very bizarre. As a scientist, I can't publish anything unless three, four people in my field give green light. Right. And it's not fun as a process. <laughs> you know, they, they, there are reviews that are very harsh. They're very demanding. They, yeah. they really grill you. And that's fantastic. It's hard for us, but you know, I'm a reviewer for but a lot of papers. It should be. Right. That, that's the only way to protect people from junk science, right, right. or pseudoscience. Right. But then this, this mechanism that works for scientists and within academia just doesn't, it doesn't even exist outside of science and academia. You can, you can say whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people with the louder voices are those that are being heard the most. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that they know what they're talking about. It just means that they have a lot of time to spend on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> that you just captured our politics in our country perfectly. We have to wrap up, but uh, if you were to meet a caregiver uh, for someone with Alzheimer's and dementia, what would be the one thing you would tell them? I think that the first part is that you are right to be stressed. And uh, we as healthcare professionals understand and want to help. Number two, don't isolate yourself. I've seen my mom just had no time to just even ask for help, or she didn't know how to ask for help. It's just so hard to know what we need most and how to get what we need, right? But it's really, I think it's, it's really key to have a support group to share, especially for women. It's mm -hmm. been shown many times that women need to share their burden, even just by talking about it, much more so than men do. They just drinking a glass of whiskey doesn't work for, <laughs> for women. We need our support group. Uh, take the supplements that I mentioned. They have no side effects, although, you know, within the right doses. Just follow the dosage on the bottle. Don't go crazy with that because everything has side effects, even mm -hmm. the good things. Um, take supplements that can help you. Drink a lot of water. Find something that helps you sleep at night. You need to sleep. You really do. It, it's essential for hormones. It's essential for your brain. 
find a way to get enough sleep and not say I need to sleep 10 hours but try to get sound sleep mm -hmm. as much and as often as you can try to exercise as much as you can even if it's just walking or one thing if I can share this sure. one thing I did when when my daughter was little and I I had no time to go to the gym I just had no time so I planked I you don't know played. if you plank you oh. put yourself in a plank oh the plank position yes yeah. and hold for as long as you can and when you start the first time if you do two minutes you're lucky right and you're burning it's you're hard. burning it's yeah. so hard i was able to get up to between eight and nine minutes good for you it's only eight nine minutes and it's really the equivalent of running for 30. you're sweating <laughs> that mm -hmm. there. it's incredible yeah if that helps that's great if there's yoga that could help or anything that is also that is short mm -hmm. in time, but that you can do consistently without having to go anywhere special. You know, mm -hmm. if you do it on your floor, if you do it at the office, it's 10 minutes. Right. Right? For some people, meditation works. I go crazy when I have to yeah. register there. <laughs> but I'd rather go for a run. But right. that, again, is really personal. So if you're into running, run 10 minutes. Right. You know, it doesn't have to take, but just give your your body find your way to help your body distress and eat done. healthily as much as you can buy food online no, like order from i don't know fresh direct amazon fresh right but healthy foods like greens veggies maybe try green smoothies or green juice and drinking one right now lemon lemon juice is fantastic against stress mm -hmm. and it's a very strong antioxidant and to learn more, we can read your book, Brain Food, The Surprising Science of Eating for Cognitive Power. Dr. Lisa Moscone, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story and your science. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to share your story, go to caringkindnyc.org slash podcast. Maybe we'll use your story on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave some glowing feedback. We love positive reinforcement. I'm Chris Doucette, and you're listening to Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Karen Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving.